0: We are studying the uh, Book of the Twelve, also known as the Minor Prophets. They're referred to as minor because their length is relatively brief. The Minor Prophets as a whole are shorter than Isaiah. As a whole, they're shorter than Jeremiah. As a whole, all twelve of them together, they're shorter than Ezekiel. That's why those are considered the major prophets and these are the minor ones. I think the nine chapters of Amos, the book we're studying today, may be some of the least familiar of all. And one of the reasons that we are probably so unfamiliar with Amos is because nearly the entire book is God's declarations of judgment. It's really just the last maybe nine verses of the book where there's an explicit hope given. The rest is judgment. I've explained in weeks past that one of the best ways of familiarizing ourselves with these very unfamiliar and intimidating books is by understanding just a very basic outline of Israel's history. And I've tried to state it very, very simply in three movements, and I'm going to do that again. You begin with the peak of Israel's strength in the ancient world, and that was under David and Solomon around 1000 BC. The second phase comes when, in the generation after Solomon, the kingdom splits into north and south. This happened just a little before 900 B.C. The kingdom splits into the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to as Ephraim, with its capital in Samaria, and the southern kingdom, usually referred to as Judah, and its capital in Jerusalem. The third facet of Israel's history... What's really critical to understanding the minor prophets is both northern and southern kingdoms were decimated by foreign armies. The northern kingdom in 722 BC and then the southern kingdom about 130 years later in 586 BC. The northern kingdom was decimated by the Assyrians. Their capital was in Nineveh. You might remember Jonah was told by God to go and preach in the heart of enemy territory. The northern kingdom is decimated by Assyria with its capital in Nineveh. The southern kingdom is going to be decimated by Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Their king back in the day was King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to come in 586 and finish the destruction of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom by torching the city. And decimating the temple And taking the remnant away To Babylon as slaves It's a little outline of Israel's history We're now in our third Of the minor prophets We've studied Hosea, Joel And now we're in Amos Amos preaches just a few years Before Hosea Right around 760, 750 BC And we're going to see that Especially in the first verse Like Hosea He is consistently warning, almost like a political commentator, because of the culture's disintegration, because of the culture's immorality, the the nation is going to collapse, the nation is going to fall. And of course, he's not well liked. The reason that we study these books is because God, the one true God, our God powerfully reveals Himself to us in them. It's the reason we keep studying them. It's not because we just love hearing about judgment, it's because God reveals Himself to us. And in order for us to live with an accurate view of God, we need to consistently be confronted with the God who's there, not the God we wish were there. In Hosea, God revealed Himself as the jealous lover who hates unfaithfulness in his people, who judges unfaithfulness in his people, and who promises to change his people's hearts if they will submit to him. He will give them hearts of faithful devotion. This is what is accomplished in all who turn to Jesus, the one who enacted the new covenant. We're still waiting for its perfection, but everyone who has come to God through Jesus has experienced a heart change so that we want to obey God. God's laws are not have-tos, they're get-tos. In Joel, God revealed himself to us as the one who is going to bring final judgment on this world in the day of the Lord, the day in which the Lord shows his extraordinary power. And now we come to Amos. I'm going to read from several segments of Amos. I invite you to follow along. As in the weeks past, much of today's message is actually going to be reading and offering brief explanations of the text. Let's begin in verse one. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, he was a shepherd in that city. He saw this word concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel two years before the earthquake. There are a couple critical pieces of information here, two I want to point out. One is that he's from Tekoa. That's in Judah, just a few miles south of Bethlehem. But it's going to be interesting because we're going to read that his main mission is to northern Israel. He's from southern Israel, and he is called by God to preach in the north. That is a risky thing to do. Imagine what it would have been like in the Civil War to cross the Mason-Dixon line and tell people on the other side how wrong they were. Second, we're given a pretty specific time frame for Amos' ministry by locating it in the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam. And as I said earlier, that is around 760 BC. So he's preaching to the north about 40 years before the north falls to Assyria. Now, let me give just a sampling of a few verses. Amos 1, 2. And Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel, the mountain in the north, withers. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Jump down to verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Jump down to verse nine. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse eleven. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then chapter 2, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Amos begins with six messages that focus on how God has determined to bring judgment on six of Israel's neighbors for their awful treatment of other peoples, including Israel. This judgment, all of these proclamations of judgment, are largely going to be fulfilled in just a few decades when Assyria decimates the region, right? Records show that Assyria decimated Tyre and Gaza, among other areas. Now, you can imagine that as Amos preaches these first messages in northern Israel about God's judgment on their neighbors, how's Israel reacting? (laughs) You might have heard cheering. Yes, preach it, Amos. Down with our neighboring enemies. But in a sense, the Lord sets a hook because his seventh and eighth messages are against southern Israel and northern Israel because they're guilty of the exact same things as their neighboring countries. God is no respecter of persons. Chapter 2, verse 4 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 6 of chapter 2 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. This eighth message is the final one. It's the climactic one. It's the longest one. And in it, Amos explains that Israel has been guilty of horrible treatment of the poor, guilty of sexual immorality, guilty of idol worship, despite the fact that God was so good to them. Look at chapter two, verse 10. He reminds them how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, God is declaring judgment on his own people, the people he has saved, the people he has loved. Every one of these messages, I hope you know, begins and most of them end with, Thus says the Lord, or This is what the Lord declares. God is saying, These messages, make no mistake, they come from me. And the Lord goes on in chapter 3, look at verse 1. He's confirming that he's behind the judgment. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's why I'll punish you for all your iniquities. Do two people walk together unless they've agreed to meet? And with that question, the Lord actually begins a series of seven questions in which he basically teaches there are no coincidences in my world. God teaches, I'm behind everything that happens. Every effect has a cause. And he's saying, the reason Israel's going to be judged is because I have determined to judge her for her national behavior. Chapter four then begins with a really arresting comparison. The Lord compares Israel's women to self-absorbed cows. They're like animals in their selfishness. And in judgment, they're going to be treated like a chained, driven herd when the Assyrians come. It's sobering. It's vivid. It's unforgettable. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord speaks to the nation as a whole, saying basically, I sent famines your way. I sent droughts your way. I sent locusts your way. But look at the end of verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord you'll see the exact same thing at the end of verse 8, end of verse 9, end of verse 10, end of verse 11, five times. You didn't return to me. I gave you warning after warning and you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. So verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I'll do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his plans. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies is his name. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel. Forsaken on her land with no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand will have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred will have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and you'll live, but don't seek Bethel. And he goes on to list other places where they've set up idol temples. There were golden calves set up in Bethel. Instead, verse 6 Seek the Lord and live. Look at verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He makes destruction flash forth against the strong. Chapter 5 ends if you look at verse 13. With God counseling the godly, keep silent because the days are evil. That's a phrase that Paul alludes to in Ephesians 5. God counsels, look at chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil and love good. Perhaps the Lord will be gracious. Paul echoes that in Romans 12. Hint, the Apostle Paul loved Amos. Amos. And yet, Amos announces, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, the day of the Lord's judgment is going to come on you, the northern kingdom. And yet, verses 23 and 24, God pleads for them to repent. Take away from me the noise of your songs, chapter 5, verse 23. To the melody of your harps I won't listen, but instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The second verse has become very famous in our culture because of the way Martin Luther King Jr. used it in his I Have a Dream speech. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In this passage, God tells his people, Israel, I don't want worship songs coming from people whose lives evidence no change. Then, in the final chapters, Amos continues to prophesy God's coming judgment. In chapter 7 through 9, he relays five visions of judgment that he receives. After the first and second visions in chapter 7, Amos prays that God will relent, and God says, I will, it won't happen. But after that third of five visions, God says, there's no more going back, no more grace. And the book takes a really interesting turn in chapter 7, verse 10 when we're told how the high priest in northern Israel reacted to Amos' words. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, this was one of the places where a golden calf was set up, he sent to the king, Jeroboam, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. This is what Amos has said. Jeroboam's going to die by the sword and Israel's going to go into exile from the land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, or you who sees visions, you prophet, flee away to the land of Judah, go back to your home and eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary. It's a temple of the kingdom. And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, Nor a son of a prophet. But I was a herdsman, a shepherd, and a gardener of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and He said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So hear the word of the Lord. And Amos predicts that Amaziah's family is going to face severe consequences, and that the nation is certainly going to be overthrown by the Assyrian military. According to Amos 8.9, the next chapter, when God's judgment falls, it's going to be like the lights of the nation are turned out. It says it's going to be darkness at noon when that military invasion comes in. And the nation, chapter 8, verse 11, will experience on that day the worst famine ever. Not a famine of bread, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. When the Assyrian army is surrounding, God will be silent. The opportunity for repentance and deliverance will be passed. It's going to be judgment. Judgment. And Amos preaches this judgment all the way through chapter 9, verse 10. After this fifth vision concludes, look at chapter 9, verse 10. God says, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say, disaster is never going to overtake us. It's going to fall on them. And then in verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11, out of the amazing heart of God comes this. In that day, I'm going to raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. We've got to pause here. Keep a hand in Amos. And you've got to go over to Acts 15. The New Testament. Fifth book of the New Testament. Jump over to Acts 15 real quick. This is where many leaders from many churches have come to Jerusalem to debate whether Jewish laws should still be observed by the Gentiles. Acts 15 Look at verse 16, uh, 15, let's start there. And with this, the words of the prophets agree that the Gentiles are now coming into the people of God, just as it's written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment... This is in the Jerusalem Council 800 years after Amos. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God with the whole Jewish law. In other words, James and Peter and Paul and other church leaders who are represented there in Jerusalem say, Amos, the rebuilding, the renewal of God's people is beginning as the church starts expanding as Jews and Gentiles, people of every background, are coming to faith in Jesus. Hmm. Back to Amos, chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are come, and declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Powerful prophecy. One in which God reveals himself to us. I tried in that sampling read-through of Amos to show that one of the most Frequent phrases in this book is this is what the Lord says or that's what the Lord declares. I count 56 times in the book, 56 times in nine chapters that God keeps saying it's my word, it's my word. This is the word of the one true God. And every one of us has to be confronted with this claim. You have to ask yourself, do I believe... That Amos actually heard the one true God speaking to him and he relayed that message onto people, or was Amos making this stuff up? Is this the word of the one true God or not? Let me just say the two simplest reasons for believing that Amos wasn't making this stuff up is first, that it happened within a few decades, and second, is that throughout history since then, these words have been preserved as sacred. They were recognized in their day and afterward as the very words of God, and they've been recognized as such for 3,000 years. I'm not saying those are the only arguments, but those are the two most simple facts you have to deal with. The primary burden of Amos is to communicate that the Lord's just judgment will fall on those who live selfishly and hypocritically unless they turn and submit to God's chosen king, who's from the line of David. His message again is that the Lord's just judgment is going to fall on those who live selfishly and hypocritically unless they turn and submit themselves to his chosen Davidic king. I want to briefly unpack the three facets of that main point, pointing us back to a few statements in the book and trying to make it as practical as I can, as relevant as I can. The first point I'd pull from this main idea is focused on the Lord is the just judge. We must learn from Amos that the Lord is the just judge. This is the dominant emphasis of Amos. Amos. And it's immediately relevant, isn't it? We live in a culture that on this score is actually full of contradiction. If you've been reading the headlines just for the last week, not to mention the past few centuries, ever since newspapers have been in existence, you'll know that our culture is consumed with a desire for justice. And yet, at the same time, One of the problems, one of the most recurring problems of our society is that our society hates traditional views of God, that he is a God of justice. He is a God who issues consequences for our actions. He's a God who punishes. Millions of people ask. It's one of the most common questions and arguments against Christianity. How could a good God sentence people to prison in hell? It's a question of justice. And we're contradictory. We desire justice, and yet our culture as a whole despises God's justice. The book of Amos works through in detail nine chapters of God's just judgment and I just want to echo those first eight statements that, that Amos introduces the book with, where God says, I will not relent in punishing people for their crimes. We as Christians do not need to be shy or embarrassed that the God of the Bible is just, strictly just and severely just. We have to realize instead that God's justice is the only hope for this world's injustice. Pure, perfect justice is coming. Things will not always be as they are. The only hope for this world is a perfectly just God. And Amos presents him to us. Secondly, learn from Amos that the Lord hates selfishness and hypocrisy. On behalf of God, Amos is excoriating the people's selfishness. Their selfishness with money. The people are gorging themselves with food and alcohol. Selfishness with sexuality. People are engaging in sexual relations outside the covenantal oneness of marriage. And Amos is exposing the social ramifications of this selfishness. My personal anger, it doesn't just affect me. It affects my children. My personal debt limits my ability to give to the gospel's advance. My personal porn addiction Divides me from my wife And it fuels sex trafficking Nationally and internationally I can't sin And not affect others I might think I'm doing it in private I am not My selfishness spills over And affects my family It affects my community It affects my coworkers. It affects my world there is no way of me saying I'm going to sin privately and it only affect me. It can't happen, not in God's creation. And yet, in our day that is so concerned about social justice, most of the social justice of our day is, is calling out symptoms rather than causes. The problem with our world is that we're not right with God. And if we don't fix people at the core, we can put band-aids on things, but we can't fix things. Sociological research has demonstrated that two of the most systemic ways to pursue social justice in our day are through supporting conversionary Protestant missions and through supporting traditional marriage. First, Robert Woodbury's research. I actually share this now all the time in our new members class. His research team at the University of Texas has demonstrated over a few decades that the fastest way you turn a third world country into a first world country is through, quote, conversionary Protestant missionaries. If you wanna raise a nation's economic status, health, literacy, and education for women, Woodbury says, my research demonstrates, my peer-reviewed research demonstrates, my despised research demonstrates. People have tried to poke holes all through my research, but it still demonstrates. If you wanna take a third world country to a first world country, send them conversionary Protestant missionaries. Further, the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton demonstrates that if you want to improve people's economic status, increase their lifespan, decrease their depression and risk of suicide, give them a stable home with a committed mom and dad. 2008 publication, Marriage and the Public Good, reports, quote, when marital breakdown or the failure to form marriages becomes widespread... Society is harmed by a host of social pathologies, including increased poverty, mental illness, crime, illegal drug use, clinical depression, and suicide. It's page six of their their summary report. Yet we live in a society where those most concerned about social justice despise gospel missionaries and they despise traditional marriage. We are ripe for judgment. And I'm going to pull a God speaking through Amos on you. It's not just selfishness. It's hypocrisy. As much as God hates selfishness and its negative effect on others, God also hates religious hypocrisy. He is not interested in worship from people whose lives evidence no change. And we as American evangelicals have to take this to heart. American evangelicals are known all over YouTube. There are megachurches, lights, smoke, loud worship. And yet, research consistently shows that American evangelicals give an average of 4% of our income to charity. And that evangelical Christian singles engage in premarital sex and marrieds in no-fault divorce, almost the same as our non-Christian counterparts. God loves worship from those who've been changed by his grace. He despises the worship of people who love him on Sunday and live in a way that's contrary to him Monday through Saturday. We might hear the first bit say, yeah, preach it. Our culture's bad. Let's start at home. Third, the Lord offers hope to those who submit to his chosen king. At the heart of this book is a plea for the nation to turn from their attitudes and actions and seek the Lord, pursue the Lord. God wants them to experience his forgiveness, his blessings, he wants them to avoid judgment. And the conclusion of this book, I'm thinking especially chapter 9, verse 11, emphasizes that the only hope for individuals and for the world is in the royal king from David's line. The king who's going to come from David's family, one of David's descendants. It's no surprise that the New Testament opens the very first words, Jesus Christ, descendant of David. David. As James explained in Acts 15, that was 800 years later. It was just a few years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. James declares that this restoration promised by Amos began, wasn't completed, but it began when Jewish and Gentile enemies of God started submitting their lives to King Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world. It's incredible that God offers selfish hypocrites like us forgiveness and, and clearing of guilt so that we don't have to be judged. It's just awesome. That's how the book of Amos ends. There's a profound depiction. If you're in Amos, just look at chapter 8, verse 9. I pointed it out in passing earlier. A profound depiction of the coming judgment on the nation. God says on that day, he's describing the military invasion of Assyria. On that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon. It's powerfully describing what it's going to be like when the armies of Assyria invade Israel and ruin the people's lives. You're going to think it's daytime and the lights are going to go out. And yet, do you hear in this the echo of Matthew, Mark, and Luke who point out that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion literally the lights went out at noon. The sun on the day of Jesus' crucifixion went black at noontime as he was dying on the cross bearing the judgment of God we deserve for our rebellion. So, According to the prophet Amos, especially as we read him from a few millennia later, we know that the only hope we have is Jesus. Personally and universally, the only hope we have is Jesus. We can either embrace Jesus knowing that he experienced the judgment of God, darkness at noon in our place, or We can face the judgment of God personally as we experience darkness at noon that's going to fall on the earth as God judges it. If you've never submitted to Jesus as David's royal descendant, God's chosen king to rule on planet earth, if you've never acknowledged that he was crucified bearing the judgment that you deserve, I urge you to submit your life to Jesus today. Call out to him to be your Lord and Savior. He's your only hope. I want to end actually by pointing you back to chapter 5. Consider the description of God in Amos 5 8. The Lord is the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth. That is, you might mark it in your Bible an ancient biblical depiction of lake effect precipitation. (laughs) He summons the waters of the lake and pours them out over the face of the earth. Yahweh, I am, is his name. The great I am is the maker of Orion, the hunter constellation. Many of you know that modern astronomy now tells us that center star in Orion's sword coming off of his belt is unspeakably magnificent. It's the Orion Nebula. 1300 light years away. And it's the closest star cloud to Earth if you just measured that one star from end to end, it's 20 light years across. And if you bottled up all the mass of the Orion Nebula, 2,000 times greater than our sun. And God says, I'm the maker of Orion. When God reveals himself... Through Amos as Orion's maker, he is emphasizing his sovereignty, his power, his pure goodness, and his justice. I'm the one who made the hunter constellation, he's saying. He's really emphasizing for us the same truth that James does in his letter when he writes James 1:17 every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the father of lights the god whose judgment is so severe is a god who's great in power he's pure in goodness and he is full of the justice we long for the justice our world needs I encourage you to remember that with thankfulness and awe every time you see the hunter in the skies. Every time you gaze at God's artwork. My God painted that in the stars. My God is a God of pure justice. He is a God of pure goodness. He's also a God who doesn't change. And considering that he made Orion Nebula, he's probably a God I'm not going to understand. And I'm going to give my life to him. May Amos impact all of us.